From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. One of the things that happened when I got AIDS was that I made the decision that I was not going to be timid or closeted about either having AIDS or being gay. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and little audio exclusives we find all over the world. We listen to whatever we can get our ears on, then bring you the best of what we hear each week. I collapsed to the floor and went into a full-blown uh, seizure, grandma seizure, in the middle of the newsroom. When Jeffrey Schmaltz walked through the door of the New York Times in 1973, he was a 19-year-old wunderkind in waiting. After starting as a night copy boy, he quickly climbed the ranks, becoming a national editor at the age of 37. Along the way, he earned a reputation for his groundbreaking coverage of the AIDS epidemic. At the time, the early 90s, AIDS was killing tens of thousands of people, ravaging the gay community, among others. Schmaltz was out to his friends, but closeted at work when, on the afternoon of Friday, December 21, 1990, he had a grand mal seizure in the middle of the newsroom and soon after was diagnosed with full-blown AIDS. Today, we devote most of the hour to Jeffrey Schmaltz's life and work. This is Dying Words, the AIDS reporting of Jeffrey Schmaltz and how it transformed the New York Times. Produced by Carrie Donahue and Sam Friedman, Jeff's mentee and friend. Here's Sam. From the time I was a teenager, my dream was to someday be a reporter on the New York Times. And on the day I started that job in 1981, I met my new boss, Jeff Schmaltz. I was 26, and he was just two years older than me. He was a rigorous and inspiring editor who made me a better writer. And when my work met his lofty standards, he promoted it, sometimes getting me on the front page. There was another thing about Jeff. He was the first person in my life to tell me he was gay, confidently, unashamedly. But in the office, to his bosses, Jeff was tightly in the closet. Until this one day. It was a Friday, just before Christmas in 1990. An unexpectedly quiet day on the national desk, most people thinking about the parties they were going to that weekend. Jeff was working editing copy. In a 1993 interview, he recalled the moment he started to feel strange. Suddenly, my vision started to go. I, I couldn't see the screen well. And I stood up. I thought, if I can just get some air, I'll be all right. I collapsed to the floor and went into a full-blown uh, seizure, grandma seizure, in the middle of the newsroom. And so that's what then started everything. Jeff was soon diagnosed with AIDS, making him just one of nearly 8,000 people to be stricken by the incurable disease that year in New York City alone. Months later, Jeff was able to return to work with a changed perspective. And when he did, he had a mission. I feel an obligation to those with AIDS to write about it and an obligation to the newspaper to write what just about no other reporter in America can cover in quite the same way. And I feel an obligation to myself. This is the place reporting where I'm at home. This is the place where I must come to terms with AIDS. Over the next 18 months, Jeff Schmaltz wrote about what it was like to be living and then dying of AIDS in America. 
Soma Golden Bear was national editor of the Times then. A lot of people were still closed off to AIDS. It's not in my life. Jeff took that in a poignant way and said, you better read this. This is about all of us. It wasn't just about one guy when you read it. It was everybody's brother. It was, it was his sister's brother, his parents' kid. And, and I think that's been a huge part of what has transformed this country. And he started doing it. Jeff wrote dozens of AIDS articles, writing that changed the way the New York Times talked about AIDS and about the lives of gay men and women. And because of the Times' influence, that work changed the way many other journalists wrote. People all over the country talked about Jeff's work, activists, politicians, doctors, just plain readers. But newspaper articles don't last, especially articles that are now 25 years old, even articles that had the impact Jeff's did. I was haunted by Jeff's death, and I despaired that his work had been forgotten. My quest to bring it back to life led me here, to a converted barn in upstate New York. Jeff Schmaltz's sister Wendy lives in a small house a couple of hours north of New York City. She keeps Jeff's papers and notes in boxes in an office in the barn, including cassette tapes of the dozens of interviews he did for his AIDS stories. Each one has a label and a scribbled name. Yeah, Magic Johnson. Clinton. Yeah. Oh, Harold Brodkey, wow. Wendy works today as a literary agent. Like Jeff, her professional life led her a long way from where they both began, in a small Pennsylvania town. We grew up in a suburb of Philadelphia called Willow Grove, where there was a big amusement park um, for years and years and years. And the tagline was, life is a lark at Willow Grove Park. Their father was out of the picture, an alcoholic who died when Jeff was a teenager. Their mother worked as a manager at the local Sears. So my mother, you know, had a tough road to hoe. It was hard in the early 60s to have two children and work full time. And I think she had to be very strict. And she always instilled in us a drive for perfection. Jeff got into Columbia University with a special scholarship for fatherless boys. He wanted to come to New York. Well, you know, I mean, part of that was because he was gay. It had to have been. I mean, it wasn't easy to be a gay teenager in Willow Grove, Pennsylvania in 1970. Anna Quinlan is a columnist and a novelist. She was a friend of Jeff's at the New York Times. You know, over and over over the years, I've heard my gay friends tell me this story depending on where they fell on the Mississippi River, either that they were looking towards New York or they were looking towards San Francisco for salvation. They thought, here is where I can go to be my authentic self. And I think Jeff was just part of that. Jeff started college in the fall of 1971. And since he'd worked on his high school newspaper, he applied for a copy boy's job on the New York Times. Jeff's sister, Wendy. And I remember he wrote a letter to the Times saying, I didn't go to private school. I don't come from a wealthy family. I'm not the sort of person you'd normally hire, but I'm terrific and you should hire me. And they did. A copy boy's job in those days was to deliver stories from reporter to editor, from editor to printing press. Jeff paid careful attention to how it all worked. Alan Siegel was the news editor of the Times. He hired Jeff. It quickly became clear that he was this kid whose job was to walk around the floor of the newsroom carrying things and delivering things, and he knew what he was carrying, and he knew what he was doing, he knew what you were doing. If an editor overlooked something, he'd tactfully bring the piece of paper back and say, didn't you mean to do something here? And his suggestions were always on point. For Jeff, the Times was a perfect fit. 
I don't know that I would want to be a newspaper man for anybody else. I'm a Times man. He talked about that in a 1993 interview. There's an anecdote, you know, uh, some mayor of New York, I don't know if it was Jimmy Walker or whatever, and uh, he asked if there were uh, any reporters out there waiting to see him, and the aide said that there are uh, four reporters and a gentleman from the Times. But while Jeff was starting his career at the Times, outside of work he had another life. His sister Wendy remembers the first time he took her to his boyfriend's apartment. He was saying he was bringing me to a friend's apartment. But when I got there, it was clear that they were living together. And he, I, just, I was the one who said it. I said, so you're gay, aren't you? And he said, yes, and that was it. You know, that was a time when you could be very out in your personal life and very in in your public life. And that's how he was. Michael Spector is a science writer for The New Yorker magazine. Like Jeff, he started his career in the newsroom at The Times. He used to come down to my apartment and we would hang out for a while, and then we would go off to our separate places, and I think Jeff's separate place was the peers and God knows what. But there was never any question that he was gay. He just felt like it was a normal part of life, which it was, but that was not exactly the prevailing view. And it certainly wasn't the prevailing view at the New York Times. I didn't tell anybody in the first couple of years at the paper that I was gay. You thought if people found out you were gay that your career would be over? People's careers were over when it became known. It was very scary stuff. Throughout the 70s and much of the 80s, as long as a gay reporter at the Times stayed secretive, the paper was willing to operate on a basis of don't ask, don't tell. It was more a matter of omission rather than commission. Things that you didn't say, things that you didn't talk about. You know, the pronoun of who you saw last weekend. Laughing at jokes where gay people were the butt of the joke. You'd laugh along because you had a cover to protect. This is NBC Nightly News with Tom Brokaw in New York. Even as gays and lesbians were struggling within the times, reports began to emerge about a mysterious new illness striking gay men. Scientists at the National Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta today released the results of a study which shows that the lifestyle of some male homosexuals has triggered an epidemic of a rare form of cancer. The New York Times first reported on the disease in July 1981. It was a medical story under the headline, Rare Cancer Seen in 41 Homosexuals. But the story was buried on page 20, just a single column stuck to the left of a big ad for holiday fireworks. If it had been the Boy Scouts or PTA Moms, it would have been on the front page. Eric Marcus is a journalist and the author of Making Gay History. He was a network TV producer in the late 80s. What I found when I worked in journalism during those years was a profession that was completely unprepared to cover gay people in general, let alone an epidemic. When Eric worked at ABC's Good Morning America, he had to convince his colleagues to let him do a story about AIDS as part of a series on being single in America. But the show's film library only had a handful of stock images. They showed gay men stripped to the waist, sweaty and gyrating in a disco. Or they showed two guys holding hands, shot from behind, walking down Castro Street. But I wanted to show gay people beyond disco. So I wanted background footage that we could use for the piece that showed real people. And I got the Front Runners, which was an organization of gay runners here in New York, to allow me to come and shoot background footage. And they were thrilled because gay people were hungry for true portrayals in the media. We shot the footage and the executive producer said no, that the only way that we could portray gay people in this segment was 
with footage of gay people at discos. Even though that attempt didn't work, Eric was doing what a lot of gay journalists, Jeff included, were trying to do. The struggle for all of those reporters was how, and, and editors, was how do you do that without drawing too much attention to yourself? Because you didn't want your superiors figuring out you were gay because you were assigning favorable stories. By 1983, more than 500 people in the United States had died from AIDS and a thousand others had been diagnosed. Jeff saw that the paper was missing a very big story. Mike Norman was a Metro reporter then. It was clear that the disease was spreading so rapidly, it was having a profound cultural and social effect as well as a medical effect. Mike Norman was one of the strongest and straightest reporters on Jeff's desk. He was a former Marine who'd served in Vietnam and was now married and raising kids in the suburbs. Jeff convinced his boss, Peter Malonis, to assign Mike to do a big feature story on AIDS and gay life in the city. And when Peter gave it to me, he said, just remember, we want you to write about gays as if you're writing about the daughters of the American Revolution. In other words, we don't want anything salacious. We don't want anything melodramatic. And above all, we don't want sex. No sex at all in this story. I said, okay, I can do that. So I go walking out of Malonis's office, and I didn't get 10 or 12 feet before there's Schmaltz right in my face. And he says, you know I'm gay, don't you? I mean, I didn't know for sure, but I just said, of course, Jeffrey. He said, you're going to need help with this. I'll take care of you. And I remember two places that he took me to. They were nightclubs, and they were subterranean, both of them. And in one, it was gay men sitting around, drinking, caressing, fondling. And in the other, you had to take off your shirt when you walked in the door. I said, okay, fine, I'll take off my shirt. So Jeff is not only talking to people he knew in these clubs, but he's also sort of half keeping an eye on me. And I, I got propositioned a bunch of times, you know. If it got to be too much, Jeff would always just kind of slip in and say, hi, I'm his editor, he's really got to work. Mike Norman worked on his story for months. It ran on the front page under the headline, Homosexuals Confronting a Time of Change. But in this 1993 interview, Jeff says there was a swift reaction from upper management at the Times. They didn't want me in the newsroom. I was uh, removed as an editor and was sent to roam around the region and write feature stories. It was a punishment, the kind of assignment they'd give to a new hire. Jeff was going to have to work his way back onto the Times' fast track. Once he got to Albany, Jeff tangled with New York's governor, Mario Cuomo. Mario Cuomo was a really tough person to cover, and I learned how to cover him in no small part from Jeff. Adam Nagorny has been a political reporter at the Times for decades. Back then, he was covering Albany for the New York Daily News. And I got a call at 7 o'clock in the morning, and it was the governor, and he said, the governor Mario Cuomo, complaining about whatever story I wrote. And he said, you cut off my testicle, just like that. And just went into this long critique of my coverage. And I was freaked out. I did not know what to do. That night, I had dinner with Jeff. And I told him about it. And he looked at me. He said, well, did you write it down? I said, no, I never thought about it. He goes, everything is on the record. When he calls you like that, that's a story. That tells you what the governor of New York is like. You should keep a notebook by your bed. And when he does stuff like that, you should write it. So that's how I proceeded covering Mario Cuomo 
and every other politician I covered to this day. It was a great lesson. In 1990, the New York Times brought Jeff back to New York as deputy national editor. He was 37 years old, and the newsroom had changed. There was an openness that came from a new executive editor, Max Frankel, and from the incoming publisher, Arthur Sulzberger Jr. Rich Meislin remembers. Arthur was taking people out for lunch and asking them what it was like to be gay at the New York Times. And when that question came from him, you like dropped your fork because the message it was sending was, I know and it's okay. Gay and lesbian staffers started to test that new tolerance, even posting signs around the newsroom to gather a group for the annual Gay Pride March. And the signs said, we're having a party, we'd love to invite you, but we don't know who you are. There was another big change in the newsroom. In 1987, the Times finally allowed the use of the word gay instead of homosexual. Alan Siegel was the arbiter of Times style then. It was very hard to avoid using a term like gay when the whole of society was using it. And increasingly homosexual sounded freakish in writing. It didn't sound conversational. It didn't even sound normal. The times had changed, but Jeff wasn't taking any chances. Maybe he could have come out if he'd been content to stay a regular reporter. But it was something else entirely, something that still felt impossible to be an openly gay man on the masthead, the list of the highest-ranking editors. And the masthead was where Jeff wanted to be. So he stayed in the closet to his bosses, at least until the December afternoon in late 1990, when he collapsed suddenly at his desk. I remember uh, coming to, I was lying on the floor, and then I just remember everywhere, doctors and uh, medical technicians arriving, and uh, I just remember this big fuss. And I remember kept telling people, I'm, I'm okay, I'm okay. <laughs> and they kept saying, you're not okay. Jeff's sister, Wendy, was at her office Christmas party when she got a call about her brother. I was having a one for the road with a friend of mine at the office when the phone rang, and it was someone at the Times who said that he had had a seizure in the newsroom and was rushed to St. Clair's Hospital, and Rich Meislin had gone with him. It was horrible. Nobody understood why it was. Jeff collapsed, including Jeff, although I suspect that he suspected we weren't allowed to see him because they were running tests. And then, I don't know, maybe an hour, an hour and a half later, Jeff comes out looking slightly rumpled, but only slightly rumpled. And he said, let's all go to Joe Allen's and have some dinner. And I said, do you think that's a good idea? And he's like, absolutely, I'm fine. Let's just go to Joe Allen's and have some dinner. Jeff hadn't been tested for HIV before his collapse. He'd felt fine. But more seizures led to more tests. He went back to his doctor weeks later for the results. He talked about that in a 1993 interview. He said, I must tell you with this uh, diagnosis that you officially have AIDS. And furthermore, your uh, T-cell count is two. Two is an unbelievably low T-cell. Most normal people would have a thousand T-cells. You have two, and my life expectancy at that point was really a matter of weeks. And I remember getting in the cab, leaving my doctor. You know, we're talking about a five-minute cab ride. And I thought, God, I hope I live just these five minutes. That was how, how much I thought I was going to die immediately. Jeff's sister, Wendy. 
he called me the day he got the diagnosis and he was completely unsentimental and said, this is what I want for my funeral. This is what don't tell mom because she shouldn't know yet. We have to figure out what we're going to do. Very businesslike. And again, over dinner, over martinis, it was just, um, it was like he was going away for vacation and I had to feed his fish. I mean, it was, he was that matter of fact about it. Jeff was equally matter of fact when he went to tell executive editor Max Frankel about his diagnosis. I said, Max, I have the results of the tests, and it's very bad news. It's about as bad as it could be, actually. I have full-blown AIDS. And he looked stunned. And he said, does this surprise you? And I said, well, when you're a gay man, it's always in the back of your mind that you could have AIDS. With that brief conversation, Jeff also became the highest-ranking journalist at the Times to come out to top management. He left that day with every reassurance that if he were able to return, he'd still have a job at the paper. By that year, 1990, more than 60,000 people had already died of AIDS in the United States. Jeff later told a group of high school students that a visit to his dermatologist for a simple rash brought home how fragile his health now was. He poured over me, I mean, bright lights and huge magnifying lenses, and he went over my body just centimeter by centimeter and looked at this rash. And when he was finished, he looked up at me and he said, I don't think it's fatal. And I laughed. You know, it would be like teasing one of you people, having a little scratch on your hand and saying, ah, you know, it's not fatal, come on. Except I realized that he wasn't kidding. For the next few months, Jeff was in and out of the hospital for pneumonia, for blood clots. He underwent brain surgery. I think emotionally I just collapsed. I... Uh, I just became so despondent. I just thought, this is it. I'll never recover from this. But then, to everyone's astonishment, Jeff did recover. He went on AZT, the primary drug treatment at the time. He felt better, and he thought about taking whatever time he had left to travel. But then he realized escape wasn't him. It is not my way. And uh, my way for 20 years has been the New York Times. The New York Times defines who I am in a lot of ways. And I wanted to work this out in the pages of the New York Times. Even though the Times had become a much more tolerant place for its gay employees, the paper's coverage of the AIDS epidemic was widely criticized by gay activists. The group ACT UP even held a protest march outside the publisher's apartment. In their eyes, by not giving more prominent attention to the disease, the Times was contributing to the death of thousands of people. In the middle of all that controversy, Jeff understood that his illness had given him a new, and for a reporter, highly unusual perspective on the AIDS epidemic. And in this 1993 interview, Jeff acknowledged that by keeping silent about his gay identity for such a long time, he'd been complicit in downplaying the AIDS story at the New York Times. In retrospect, I feel terrible that I wasn't more open and that I didn't speak up more and that I didn't say, wait a minute, this is outrageous. We're missing this epidemic. And I didn't. I was afraid. I was a coward, really. And one of the things that happened when I got AIDS was that I made the decision that I was not going to be timid or uh, closeted about either having AIDS or being gay, and that I was going to speak out and that I was going to use my position to help both those causes. Jeff Schmaltz somehow wanted to bring his own experience as a gay man with AIDS into the stories he wrote. It was unheard of for a reporter at the Times to deliberately abandon his or her objectivity, 
especially on a topic where you had such a personal stake. But Jeff felt his illness gave him an invaluable insight. And when he went back to work, that's what he told The Times' executive editor, Max Frankel. When he first came back after looking after himself medically and countering many other people who had AIDS and all their struggles and so on, he consciously talked about how he wanted to report in the field of AIDS because what he had learned, a whole new world had opened up that he never knew existed. And he thought it was interesting and dramatic and important, and he wanted to write about it. Jeff's sister, Wendy. I want to cover AIDS, and I can cover it even though I have AIDS. And sometimes I'll be part of the story, and sometimes I won't. So that was a huge shift. It's a a seismic shift. To start with, Jeff wrote a series of profiles of people suffering from AIDS. All of them, like him, were still working in spite of the disease. It was a diverse group, a San Francisco AIDS doctor, a gay Bill Clinton campaign staffer, a mother infected by blood transfusion, and Mary Fisher, a Republican insider, tapped to speak at the 1992 Republican convention. When I first uh, wrote about her, I was rather antagonistic. I mean, I really confronted her and said, you know, how can you speak at this Republican convention when these Republicans have done nothing for AIDS? Enter now Mary Fisher, very rich, very Republican, and very much infected with the virus that causes AIDS. With her shoulder-length blonde hair styled just so, Ms. Fisher is right out of Republican central casting, the muffy, buffy, jody look writ expensive. And why not? Her Republican credentials are impeccable. I knew what I looked like, but I, you know, I didn't like that description of me. But then, other than that, I thought that the article was really right on, and I thought he was very honest. Ms. Fisher, who so far has not had any AIDS-related illnesses, is caught between the worlds of Republican politics and AIDS activism, both of them at times uneasy about her. No matter how antagonistic Jeff felt at the start of the interview, he soon came to realize that he had a lot in common with Mary Fisher. They both had to stop during the interview to take their doses of AZT, and they'd both chosen to be very public about their illness. There is the bond between two people who have what is not just a fatal disease, but is a disease with an incredible stigma to it. It's a bond between two people with an illness that America just looks on as if you're lepers. With that, she seemed to end the chat, but a few minutes later at the door, she rushed up, I want a big hug, she said. With that, she threw open her arms, squeezing tight, and whispered, stay well. Jeff wrote about those small moments of connection. And when he did, he showed readers the experience of living with AIDS in precise and indelible ways. His fierce specificity was paradoxically the thing that made his articles so broadly relevant, so universal. The mission on the one hand is to just in general show the public that even an editor at the New York Times can get AIDS, that not everyone with AIDS is the scum of the earth, not all people, not people in general with AIDS are not the scum of the earth. And also I want people with AIDS to see me. I want them to hear the message that you're not dead immediately because you have AIDS. You're not dead till you're dead. Jeff soon expanded his AIDS coverage beyond profiles. The 1992 presidential race was underway, and for the first time, gay and lesbian issues were central to a national campaign. As a candidate, 
Bill Clinton made a number of promises regarding AIDS. Jeff's colleague Adam Nagorny was friends with D.D. Myers, Clinton's press secretary. So the three of them went out for dinner one night. And Jeff, you know, is always really aggressive on this stuff and sort of raised his idea. How about I get a chance to interview Bill Clinton on this? And D.D. was like, yeah, that's kind of really a good idea. The interview took place in the back of a limo between campaign stops. Jeff was unsure of his ability to accurately take notes now, so he recorded the interview on a miniature tape machine. We're working on peace government about how gay issues have become prominent. He began by asking Clinton why gay issues were so prominent. What do you think now after all these years? Clinton replies that AIDS has a lot to do with it. AIDS has become so pervasive in our country and nearly everybody now knows someone who's HIV positive and many of us have friends who've died of AIDS. Jeff's interview with Bill Clinton became part of a larger story about the emergence of a gay and lesbian constituency in American politics. It was like the entire community starting to come out of the closet. Today's New York Times features an in-depth interview with Magic Johnson, but there is more to that story. The man who wrote it, assistant national editor Jeffrey Schmaltz, has AIDS. Jeff went on the Charlie Rose show to talk about his profile of basketball star Magic Johnson. Johnson was HIV positive, and he'd been forced to retire from the NBA. Other players said they felt it was too dangerous to play with him on the court. Take us there to the time you two were talking. He uh, asked me a lot about myself, and then it got a little, a little wrenching when uh, we started uh, sort of pressing back and forth, as, as happens in these uh, AIDS What's interviews. wrenching? Well, I, I asked him, had he not betrayed people with AIDS by pulling out of the league? And I think he was very stricken by that question coming from me. I don't think it would have been the same if it had come from you. Right. But then he came back with a very thoughtful answer, and, and he started talking uh, on and on about his life and how he was really more than one person. He was really two people. He was magic, and he was Irvin, and how AIDS or HIV had changed his life. And, so uh, that there was no more magic. That's correct. Um, and so that moment really broke the ice in the interview, as it's, as it's done in other AIDS interviews I've done. Meanwhile, Jeff's life was going through its own transformation. He was in a steady relationship, his first since college, with a man he'd met at an AIDS support group. He bought an apartment near Lincoln Center, moving out of the place he'd occupied since college. Even his writing had changed. It became looser, more conversational, less timesian. Old friends like Anna Quinlan noticed something bigger going on. It wasn't that Jeff's style changed, it was that Jeff's character changed. I mean, he became a different person when he became ill. He was incredibly skilled, but he could be really arrogant and judgmental when I first met him, when he was younger. There was a sense that he was judging you harshly because you'd messed up, because he was more capable than you were, which was almost always true, but is not attractive. And I hate to say it because the trope of the person and noble humanized by terrible illness is such a cliche, but in his case, it was completely true. I mean, he whistled. <laughs> You'd always know he's coming around the corner because you heard the sound of his whistle. Adam Moss is now the editor of New York Magazine. Back then, he sat next to Jeff at the Times. He was one of the happier-seeming people. It was incredibly poignant and very vivid and sort of shocking to see. I didn't know the old Jeff. I didn't know the button-down Jeff. I just knew this new Jeff 
who felt, I think, so relieved not to be carrying secrets, not to be having to perform the function of a Times man. Jeff's articles in the Times began to gather growing attention. The New Yorker and New York Magazine ran features on him. ABC News profiled him. The star photographer Annie Leibowitz did a spread of Jeff at work for Vanity Fair. Then, in late 1992, Jeff tackled his most personal story yet, his own. When he did, the words poured out of him. He talked about that in a 1993 interview. I just came in one morning and sat down and wrote it. And I took it over to Joe Lelyveld, who's the managing editor, and I said, I've written this piece. He came over a little while later and said, we'll print it. And that was it, and we put it in the newspaper. That piece was titled, A Reporter's Testimony, Covering AIDS and Living It. It ran on December 20th, 1992. Two years ago tomorrow, I collapsed at my desk in the newsroom at the New York Times, writhed on the floor in a seizure, and entered the world of AIDS. Jeff wrote about waking up with nightmares, where he was in a coffin. He wrote about his mother's death after she learned he had AIDS. He wrote about his sense of being completely alone. I make sure everyone with AIDS whom I interview knows that I have it too. To be sure that is an interview ploy, I'm hoping the camaraderie will open them up. But there is more to it than that. I want them to take a good look at me, to see that someone with full-blown AIDS can carry on for a while, can even function as a reporter. Much of the time it works. Their faces light up. There is hope. But sometimes it fails, and I am the one changed by our chat, overcome by guilt that I have lived these two years, when so many of my friends and hospital roommates and people I've interviewed have died. At times, I think my fellow eight sufferers are laughing at me, looking up from their beds with eyes that say, you'll be here soon enough. After the piece ran, Jeff got hundreds of letters from readers. They covered the whole range of attitudes at the time about gay men and about AIDS. Some of them were incredibly nasty. I think all you bastards with AIDS ought to just die. You ought to be in a home, the least expensive ones possible, until you die, pretty much what the, one of them said recently. Most of the letters are favorable and very moving. You know, they're my son died of AIDS. And a wonderful letter from a woman in Florida, my son died of AIDS, whose name was also Jeffrey. And she detailed his agonizing death. Awful. I don't, I don't even know why she wrote such detail to me. And then she sort of blurted out halfway through the letter and said, you know, I don't know why I'm writing this to you. But she was writing it to me, like so many of them write, to use me really as the sounding board for just venting all of their own emotions and their own horrors with this disease. And then she ended the letter by saying, uh, consider this letter a mother's hug. And I cried, really, when I read the letter. And I, um, I was very moved. I think often of that letter, I carry it around with me and read it from time to time. Jeff was also invited to speak at conferences and schools. In February of 1993, he addressed students at a private school in Manhattan but he felt most comfortable doing Q&A. What's your name? Dave. Do you ever feel cheated? When you think that you're going to die, as I did, and then you rebound and you live, and not only live but thrive, you don't feel cheated, you feel blessed. 
I stand before you as someone who was given time a year now that I never thought I would have and time that I've been able to put to really good use. I'm proud of that. And time not only to write about AIDS and serve the AIDS cause, but time to get my life in, in order, really. My life is more together now than it ever was. But even as he took pride in all that he'd accomplished, Jeff made sure the students knew there was no escape from the reality of his situation. I think if I had to describe to you what it's like to have AIDS and be in the state I'm in right now, I would say it's like knowing that you're going to be killed by a speeding car. But you don't know what moment, you don't know what day, it could happen this afternoon, it could happen two years from now. And so you always live with this sense of, my God, this car is running to me. When is it going to hit me? You're tuned in to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. We're in the middle of listening to Dying Words, the AIDS reporting of Jeffrey Schmaltz and how it transformed the New York Times. We'll come back to the story in just a minute after a short break. I'm extremely happy in a certain way. I know that sounds ridiculous. Here I am dying. Yet my life has never been happier. Welcome back to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. We're in the middle of listening to Dying Words, the AIDS reporting of Jeffrey Schmaltz. Schmaltz was a fast-rising editor at the New York Times who took a fearless approach to AIDS reporting, a very bold step in the early 1990s. He wrote about the crisis from the perspective of the gay community, even as he was dying from the disease himself. It is our responsibility to tell the stories of the millions of people affected by HIV. We are angry, we are disgusted, and we have nothing to lose. In 1993, Almost 42,000 people died of AIDS in the United States, twice the number from the previous year. On July 1st, Jeffrey Schmaltz was in Washington, D.C. to cover an AIDS protest, one of the first of its kind in the Capitol. His colleague at the New York Times, Sam Friedman, picks up the story there. On this drizzly Thursday, Jeff Schmaltz is standing at the edge of a parking lot near the Capitol. He's watching a tense exchange between AIDS activists from the group ACT UP and the D.C. police, both crowded around the back of a black van. The activists are trying to pull out a coffin, and the police are pushing it back in. This is a funeral. You're interfering with a funeral when the executor is a permit. Step a funeral. ACT UP wants to march the corpse of Tim Bailey, one of its members, through the streets of the Capitol. Bailey had died two days earlier of AIDS at age 35. This protest was his dying request. But the police say the activists don't have the right permits. Hey, no! Kill 
Jeff Schmaltz is here as a reporter, observing the militant edge of AIDS activism on a day of incredible futility. Bursts of confrontation punctuate long hours of standing around waiting. At this point, Jeff Schmaltz has had AIDS for two and a half years. He's lived far longer than anyone expected. He tells an ABC producer at the protest that he understands more than ever the activists' rage. As I get closer to time running out, to the end, I get angrier and angrier. Now, there are different ways of showing your anger. My way is not to march through the streets with a body. My way is just to write articles about AIDS. But marching through the street with a body has its place too. In the end, the police shut down the funeral protest. The activists closed the van and slowly drive Tim Bailey's body away. Jeff later writes about this day. Am I bitter? Increasingly, yes. At an act-up funeral in Washington, I thought of how much the anger there mirrored my own. I, too, wanted to shout at no one, really, just to vent the rage. I am dying. Why doesn't someone help us? But I didn't shout. I couldn't. All I could think about on that rainy Thursday afternoon was that a political funeral is not for me. It is at once very noble and very tacky. What then is for me? By now, Jeff knows that no last-minute miracle will save him. Worse still, he senses that national interest in AIDS is waning. We were talking, and he uttered the phrase, whatever happened to AIDS? And I said to him, that's a magazine article. Adam Moss was then the editor of the New York Times magazine. He encouraged Jeff to write a major article about the state of AIDS. The thesis of the story is very simple. A lot of the political wars had been won. It was no longer a function of getting funding for AIDS. AIDS had come up against a wall, and that wall was the wall of science. (laughs) Is that with all of the money and with all of the sort of change policies, they were still stuck at this moment when they could not solve the disease. The heart of the piece is Jeff's despair that the suffering of AIDS victims is still being pushed to the margins. I usually say that my epitaph is not a phrase, but the body of my work. I am writing it with each article, including this one. But actually, there is, in fact, a phrase that I once shouted at my funeral and written on the memorial cards, a phrase that captures the mix of cynicism and despair that I feel right now and that I will almost certainly take to my grave. Whatever happened to AIDS? The piece alternates between Jeff's personal experiences living with AIDS, taking his boyfriend to the emergency room on a Sunday morning, and his interviews with key AIDS doctors, activists, and public health officials. He fleshed out the first-person sections early on, but by late summer, Jeff was getting sicker and weaker. One was torn as his editor and his friend between wanting to push him yet not to push him because there were clearly more important things happening to him, which is he was sort of grappling with his end. Jeff's brain infection returned. He went to lunch one day with a longtime friend and colleague on The Times, David Dunlap. And as we walked back toward The Times headquarters, Jeff had his arm through mine, partly out of fondness, perhaps out of just physical support to help keep him steady. And it was clear that he wanted to stay arms locked until we had to negotiate the revolving door. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, I'm walking arm in arm 
with another man toward the New York Times building and having that old fear, like, what if they see me? <laughs> Who is they? By the fall, Jeff was at home. He could no longer speak. But the urge to write never left him. Jeff's brother-in-law, Michael Wilde, recalls one particular day when Jeff gestured that he wanted a pen and paper. And, you know, I remember the nurse saying, don't even bother with that. And I remember Wendy saying, he's a writer. He needs to have this. It would take him a long time, but he would write stuff out. And one of the last things he wrote out was, this is odious, dying is monstrous. David Dunlap lived a few blocks away. Early one morning, he got a call. Come quick. There was a nurse there, and Wendy was there. We're in the bedroom. We gather around Jeff. I recall having my left arm under Jeff's shoulder and head so that he was cradled in the crook of my left elbow. And basically it was a matter, as you do with the dying, of saying, as we did, it's all right. You've done your job. You've got love is everywhere around you. And that was the end. I mean, then all of the things began to kick in that you, that you do, the calls and the coroner and the removal of the body and all of that. Jeff Schmaltz died on November 6, 1993. He was 39. Jeff's obituary ran in the New York Times and other major newspapers around the country. But even in death, he had his critics. U.S. News and World Report published a column deriding Jeff's first-person journalism. Jeff's sister, Wendy. In Jeff's will, it says, under no circumstances am I to be buried in the family plot in Willow Grove, Pennsylvania. He didn't want to go home again. Jeff's friends and family gathered early one morning a week later on one of the piers along the Hudson River, a place that had famously been a gay cruising spot. Jeff's brother-in-law, Michael Wilde, reading from his diary. Scattering the ashes, 6.30 a.m. at the Christopher Street Pier on West Street, what Jeff jokingly referred to as the scene of the crime. The somber moment approaches, the tin is opened, and we discover the remains of Jeff in a plastic bag. Ben opens this with a Swiss Army knife. He peers into the can and describes the contents as gravelly. A sober silence is observed, and Jeff is scattered to the wind. This wasn't Jeff the hero. It was just Jeff, and we were his family. Two weeks later, the Times ran Jeff's final story with the title, Whatever Happened to AIDS? On Sunday... The cover story in the New York Times Sunday Magazine was written by a journalist named Jeffrey Schmaltz, who lived and just a couple of weeks ago died with AIDS. President Clinton gave his World AIDS Day address a few days later on December 1st. He was a remarkable man who interviewed me in a very piercing way uh, last year when I was running for president. He challenged us all with these words. In the article, I am dying. Why doesn't someone help us? I have to say to you that I think that is a good question and a good challenge. A week later, a public memorial took place at the Dalton School in Manhattan. Good evening. 
Thank you for joining us here tonight. The high school auditorium was packed with mourners. Adam Nagorny talked about the bags of mail that had piled up on Jeff's desk. And David Dunlap gave one of the final tributes. He said the way Jeff described gay life jumped out at the reader from the long gray columns of the Times. Jeff's choice of words let readers know the writer knew his subject, that he moved with familiarity through the territory he was describing, that he recognized its pace and its quirks. No question about it, Jeff was pushing hard, very hard, and not everyone was pleased, but something important began to happen. Straight readers were making our acquaintance more intimately than ever before, and gay readers who had known only an anguished loyalty to an ignorant and indifferent times began to feel as if their stories might finally find a hope in our pages. Something else happened. Those of us at the Times who saw ourselves in the vanguard during the 1980s learned quickly, thanks to Jeff, what it meant to come all the way out of the closet, to make demands and take risks. Back then, in 1993, Jeff Schmaltz's accomplishments seemed clear. Today, though, his work has largely been forgotten. Today, there are gay TV stars, gay athletes, gay politicians, and marriage equality is the law of the land. Hardly anyone seems to realize how big a part Jeff's AIDS coverage and his role as the out gay star of the New York Times played in all this positive social change. Eric Marcus, the author of Making Gay History. So much has changed in the last 20 years, 25 years, that it makes it hard to understand why he mattered and why he made such a difference. Today, I don't have to follow the gay press to understand where we are on the gay rights movement. I read the New York Times. Jeff wrote about three dozen stories on AIDS in the year and a half before he died. Nearly all of the people he profiled with AIDS died not long after he did. And they were just some of the more than 600,000 people who've died in the United States since the epidemic began. AIDS caused Jeff Schmaltz to collapse on that December afternoon 25 years ago. And facing death, Jeff asked himself some hard questions. Here's your life. Is This is it. If you died tomorrow, would you be happy? Would you feel you had achieved what you wanted to achieve? Is this how you want to go out of this world, the way you are right now? And the answer came back, no, it isn't how I want to go out. Okay, let's change it, and let's change it now. We don't have a lot of time here. And I did. I just changed it really very quickly. I've constructed this life that I have right now. I'm extremely happy in a certain way. I know that sounds ridiculous. Here I am dying. Yet my life in a lot of ways has never been happier, has never been more directed. I mean, I feel, <laughs> I feel more content. I feel um, that this is where I should have been all along, and I'm sorry that it took a fatal disease to do it but better late than never. Dying Words, the AIDS reporting of Jeffrey Schmaltz and how it transformed the New York Times, was produced by Carrie Donahue and Sam Friedman. Carrie and Sam are both professors at the Columbia School of Journalism. The program was edited and mixed by Ben Shapiro. For a link to the companion book to this documentary, visit thirdcoastfestival.org.
Even before the AIDS epidemic in the late 1980s and early 90s, people in and around the gay community were working to extend the rights and acceptance of homosexuals in the United States. In 1972, Jean Manford founded the organization PFLAG, Parents, Families, and Friends of Lesbians and Gays, in support of her son, Morty Manford, a gay man who would go on to become an assistant attorney general of New York. Writer Eric Marcus recorded an informal interview with Jean and Morty at their home in 1989. They spoke about their relationship and the founding of PFLAG. Here's an excerpt from that conversation. Do you recall the, uh, the incident that led to you becoming involved? Yes. Uh, well, Morty uh, uh, had been at the Hilton Hotel and uh, giving out leaflets to the, uh, was it the, In the inner circle. The inner circle had a lunch or dinner or whatever. And the inner circle was. His the inner circle was and still is an annual get together. Uh, of the of politicians and the political press in New York City, the um, uh, leaflets were to protest an editorial which had run in the New York Daily News about a week before. Uh, the editorial was a comment on uh, a refusal by the U.S. Supreme Court to uh, consider an appeal by um, Baker uh, in his application to marry uh, McConnell at the University of Minnesota. And the New York Daily News editorial was titled, quote, Any Old Jobs for Homos? And the lead-off sentence was, quote, Fags, fairies, nances, swishes, call call M, apostrophe E-M, what you please. This was 1971. And uh, so um, we went to this dinner armed with leaflets and proceeded to distribute the leaflets to people uh, in attendance, many of whom were good people who were very supportive uh, of gay rights and um, uh, had welcomed uh, our um, uh, arrival. However, there were a number of thugs in attendance who were uh, guests of the uh, dinner that um, proceeded to physically attack the demonstrators. It was beaten up, uh, punched and kicked and uh, no broken bones, no internal injuries, but uh, a bad beating. I had a call from the hospital, and, and then I sat down and wrote a letter to the New York Post. Did you have any invitation about writing this no, letter? No, I didn't. I mean, I was furious. Mm -hmm. Why um, were you furious? What infuriated? What, what right had they got to, uh, to assault my son and others, and uh, why didn't the police protect them? I guess it was the first time a mother ever sat down and said, yes, I have a homosexual child. Were you hesitant at all about saying no. that? No. I didn't even think about it. And I was amazed that Morty told me that it received such wide notice from that he had had so many calls at the time from people and, you know, about it. What did you think of your mom? I thought she was terrific. Um, I mean, it, it, it seemed to me... Uh, on one level to be very natural kind of reaction and concern and involvement for a parent. 
what I thought was extraordinary was that other people weren't doing the same at that time. What made your mother different? She's a unique person. I've always felt that Morty was a very special person. Uh, you know, and uh, I wasn't going to let anybody walk over him. How do we get then from this first letter uh, to what has now become a national, international federation of them. Did you have any idea well, at that time that mm-hmm. that this could come to pass, that you would wind up being in such a public position? Because you seem not like a very private time. person. Not at that time, but yes, I, I'm very shy, by the way. <laughs> and, uh, I was not the type to, I never belonged to organizations, I never tried to be, to do anything, so it, it just happened, you know. No, I was asked to be on a television show in Boston, and well, the three of us yeah. went. We went out to Cincinnati. Uh, at one point, my parents appeared on a, a TV show in New Detroit. Orleans. Well, I would think five times in Boston, Cleveland, or two or three times Detroit. Every talk show in uh, New York. City. Because we were the only. Uh, because at that time, we were the only people who were willing to go public. I guess. We were anxious. We felt that it was a way of educating the public, of you know, making people understand. And besides that, when I did march with Morty, was it '72? Did you ask him to march? Yeah, you came to me and you said, uh, you know, he said, "March, will you march with us?" I said to him, "I will march if you let me carry the sign." I couldn't see marching. What good does it do another person marching unless? Right. You know. What did the sign say? Parents of gays unite in support for our children. How did people react to you then again? They screamed, they yelled, they ran over and kissed me. And, uh, would you tell me, well, would you talk to my mother? We had so much of that. Would you speak to my mother? Uh, Wow, my mother saw me here, you know, and they they just couldn't believe that uh, a parent would would do that. Were you with your mother during the march? Oh yes, yes, we marched shoulder by shoulder there. Uh-huh. And uh, it was a great experience. Uh, it was unbelievable because I had been in the previous year's march also and um, the outpouring of emotion from our own community was overwhelming. Nobody got the loud uh, emotional cheers that she did. Why Why the, re- the emotional reaction? Well, because, I mean, we learned that they, they were fearful of telling parents, most of them wouldn't tell, and many had been uh, rejected because the parents knew, and uh, I guess they just couldn't, didn't feel that any parent could be supportive of a gay child. And uh, the symbolic presence that my mother provided uh, was a sign of great hope that, um, that, that, that parents can be supportive, that the people we're closest to, whom we love the most, uh, uh, need not be our enemies, can be our supporters, and uh, I think uh, the desire on the part of gays to share their totality as, as, as 
people as gays and lesbians was very much um, uh, the reason why uh, the parents have been getting such an overwhelming response. As Morty and I walked along during that first march, we were talking about, so many people said, talk to my parents, and there were phone calls all day long. That phone was ringing. And uh, so that's when we decided, though, during the march, that we might, it might be a good idea to start something, some you kind of an organization. Yes, that's, that's really where it began. That was Jean and Morty Manford, activist son, revolutionary mom, for the podcast Making Gay History, produced by Sarah Burningham. Eric Marcus spoke with the Manfords at their home in Queens, New York, on May 13, 1989. For a link to more stories from Making Gay History, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. Isabel Vasquez is our production assistant. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Monaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival,